Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. We did have Israeli bodyguards. Mm-hmm. They're mm-hmm. legit. Mm-hmm. They were bodies. Mm, and they were. Me and I was very okay with that. Yeah, you, should, you, you should be taken to the hospital by one of them. <laughs> why? Did one of them take you to the hospital? Yeah. Why, oh, was it when you ate nuts by mistake? Uh, yeah. The, and 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 he uh, raced me to the hospital and totally sat. wasted what? on oh. you, Ben. It was. You, you yeah. needed a medical emergency to really feel the full effect. I tried of to create a security emergency. I was going to start like fighting people on the street. He sat at my bedside for like twelve hours. Lucky, lucky man. You would have really liked it. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Hillary and Hellfire edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Daily Beast. We didn't talk to you guys last week. I'm sorry if our absence was profoundly felt and troubling. I missed us. I missed missed you. Well, thank you. I missed you too. Uh, I was away in in the Holy Land. I was in Israel last week. You do have sort of a glow about you, a certain holiness. Do I seem enlightened? Uh, yes. You do. do. Some of the holiness rubbed off. I think I just seem tanned and like um, really overfed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I got a lot of sun and ate a lot of food. What took you to Israel? I was in Israel with uh, Academic Exchange, which is a group that Ben and Matt Waxman and some other fine folks are a part of. Uh, with a, we called ourselves, it was a delegation, technically. Yes, right? An you American were a delegate. delegate. I was a delegate. But were you a super I, delegate? I was, I was a super delegate, indeed. <laughs> Delegated to go speak with uh, Israeli I mean, officials, like national security officials, people from IDF, people from law enforcement and the justice ministries, people from civil society, talking with Palestinians. It was kind of the grand tour for a week uh, in Israel, which Ben and Susan have been on this particular trip. Have you been on that trip? No, I have not. You have you got to get Israel. yourself I have, I've on been that. I've Israel just us. once or twice. Once or twice here and there? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that, of course, is my good friends, Ben Wittes, Susan Hennessy, Mark Hoffman Wittes. Hello, everybody. Hey, Shane. Did you Hi, all Shane. like your trips to Israel when you have gone? I did. I loved my trip to Israel. Yeah. You were on this particular tour. I was. I took the same trip in December, <laughs> yeah. um, which was a slightly different uh, experience climate-wise, but yeah. also had a uh, lovely time. Not quite blisteringly hot as it was when we were there? No, it was not. It was perfect. Yeah. It was like... It was almost 91 degrees the day that we actually took a four-hour walking tour of the old city in Jerusalem. But it's a dry heat. It sure is. <laughs> <laughs> it dries you out and then makes you pass out. Fortunately, nobody had heat exhaustion. That was a good thing. Yeah. Well, welcome back. Thanks. And uh, it's glad to be back at the show. Um, some things happened while we were gone. Just a few, a few yeah. things. We're going to talk about this week. Um, Hillary Clinton says Donald Trump can't be trusted to protect U.S. national security. Uh, in Israel, there's talk of another war in Gaza. We're going to get to that. And a federal's appe- federal appeals court rules that the Fourth Amendment doesn't apply to cell phone location information. Uh, plus, we have some an excellent object lesson, I think, in store. We have a special object lesson. We have a very special object lesson. It's it's um, It's kind of even... It's going to unfold for all of us. It's going to be a live object. It's more of an object experience. It's more of an object experience. We're going multimedia. Yeah, yeah. So stay tuned for that. Um, Let's start with the big news. Uh, Hillary Clinton gave a major speech on national security last week. 
Um, I'm not even sure I can call it a national security speech since most of it was spent contrasting her own views on national security with Donald Trump's, by which I mean contrasting herself as a reasonable, sane human being with a madman uh, who cannot be trusted with the nuclear codes. Yeah, it was principally a spe- a na- only a national security speech if you consider her opponent to be a threat to national security. <laughs> <laughs> this is really the what I'm going to do about Donald Trump's speech yeah, in exactly. many ways. I, I actually think that more broadly, last week was a turning point in the narrative about yeah, Donald Trump, which so. is not to say that people didn't think of him before as unstable or thin-skinned or hot-tempered or a mad dog, but suddenly it became an overarching narrative. And I think we saw in the wake of this speech, which framed the issues um, in terms of what are the kind of core requisites for your next commander in chief. Uh, it wasn't even about specific policy issues. It was about temperament. And I think, you know, Clinton laid out in detail and with anecdote and example uh, why Trump's temperament would be so dangerous. And then the whole media narrative shifted. The Trump University stuff came out. And there, there's just been this wave and drumbeat of criticism, of course, exacerbated by Trump himself, who uh, has really um, doubled down on some of the dimensions of his political discourse that have been most troubling. And so it's given people a lot of opportunity to uh, dig into what is so upsetting about this candidacy. I mean, I think it was a turning point as well in just sort of um, the general election. So Hillary has now clinched the nomination, first female to lead a major party ticket. Can we just stop for a moment and say, that's really exciting. That's really yeah, exciting. That's um, and I, I do wonder, uh, you know, it's sort of interesting. Um, I think even David Axelrod um, commented that the fact that young women don't seem to find this remarkable is itself remarkable mm-hmm. in terms yeah. of how far we've come. Right. Um, but the... Uh, this really is a historic moment. Um, it, obviously, there are uh, a lot of challenges remain, but this is the glass ceiling, right? It's it's the big one, and so um, I, you know, I think it's worth taking a moment yeah. to sort of pause and celebrate. Um, also, celebrate the fact that the, you know, the Democrats are following up the first black president with the first female president. Yeah. That's you know that well, means something. It's a huge contrast, and I think that you know, there was another contrast I think was notable, and I and I and I think will signal a shift in the campaign strategy where you had in the week or so, 10 days or so preceding that speech, Trump going on the offensive with just every skeleton from the, you know, the Clinton closet, including, you know, the truly more paranoid conspiracies about things like the death of Vince Foster and making clear that this was going to be a campaign in which he was going to offer essentially just nothing but attacks and sort of recycled attacks at that on Clinton and linking her to her husband. And her response to that seems to be, okay, you want to talk about Jennifer Flowers and Vince Foster, I'm going to talk about the fact that you can't be trusted with America's security and that there's something deficient in you and that you're unfit for office. But I, and I think many people were hoping she would throw that counterpunch, and I think she did. Well, and, and I think that's a really interesting point, Shane, because I think it's not just the substance of the critique that people are responding to, but the fact of the critique that, you know, a few weeks ago when Elizabeth Warren went on this sort of Twitter war against Donald Trump, it really energized the Democratic base to see uh, her taking hard hits at him. And I think in a way, it's less about national security and less about, you know, the the issues and more simply that Hillary Clinton gave a speech that hit good and hard in, and punches landed 
And so the base feels like, wow, we do have a general election candidate that can fight this fight for us. Mm -hmm. And I think it created a lot of energy. But I, I do actually think, though, I think that it signals that we are about to see a national security campaign. I agree. Um, that that is going to be sort of the primary issue, and it'll sort of manifest itself as an as a question of temperament, but that uh, the Clinton campaign is going to frame the narrative of the question at stake is not just do we want this crazy person with the nuclear codes, but what is America's place in the world? What are our commitments to our core values when they're sort of most tested? Um, you know, this kind of, in some ways, Trump actually adopting the America first line, which I think he did in his um, his speech the other evening. That, that's Donald Charles Lindbergh Trump. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I mean, either either ignorant to sort of the history of the phrase or or embracing it fully, yeah. right? It sort yeah. of doesn't Which matter. was worse, right? <laughs> a little bit of both. <laughs> so I think yeah. we're about to really, um, I think it's going to be a really interesting campaign for people who are interested in our particular set of issues, but, because I really think it's going to be framed in these terms. Well, I, Susan, I, don't you think it's going to be a national security conversation on one side and a um, because Donald Trump's uh, attack on Hillary is not uh, a parallel attack that she's bad for national security. It's a it's a much more personal attack that you know she's corrupt, that uh, she is an enabler of sexual violence, that she's uh, you know mishandled her emails uh, in in a, and that there's a sort of bad stuff with the Clinton Foundation and that America is losing in terms of trade wars and uh, and international affairs, including national security. But it seems like it's a it's a national security conversation in one direction and and a sort of you suck conversation in the other direction. Well, I think you're basically right about that, Ben. Although, you know, as a national security person, of course, I would salivate over a national security campaign. I, and I think it's interesting that from the moment Clinton announced her candidacy, everyone assumed that her campaign would center around foreign policy and national security. And now, in a way, coming back around to it, using Donald Trump's temperament as the focal point and a very effective focal point. But, of course, she's always had a domestic policy agenda and had a long career working on domestic policy before she became Secretary of State. So I always felt like that. That assumption that, the, that she was going to run a national security campaign was a bit overblown. And I think you're right, Ben, about Trump's counterattack. And yet, the Republican narrative about Hillary Clinton has, has had this important national security focus. Well, you know, if you think it's substantive on Benghazi yeah. and stuff like that. And, He's not going to disown that. He's going to use it. Trey Gowdy is going to be using it. You know, there are going to be a lot of surrogates out there, I think, talking about her record as Secretary of State. So I, I, there will be a bit of a national security debate. And and when the two of them are on stage together in presidential debates, I'm sure that will come up point by point. I think that's right. I just think, you know, if you take that speech that she gave last week as emblematic of a major theme of her campaign, uh, you know, a major theme of his campaign is not Hillary Clinton is dangerous from a national security point of view. It's Hillary Clinton is a corrupt, lousy person who's the sort of person who's keeping you down, white voter. Um, and, and, <laughs> right. and, right. and her theme is really 
this guy is endangering the country. And, and that does strike me as not quite parallel. And uh, so I wonder if it's going to be, you know, a, a real national security conversation on one side attacking the other and the other a much more broad-based, you suck, and by the way, no, you're bad for national yeah. security well, he kind will of get response. Stopped, but he will go revert to some of his tried-and-true policy issues of building the wall with Mexico, uh, renegotiating or tearing up trade deals, banning Muslims from entering the United States, all of which touch on elements and dimensions of foreign policy and national security. Right. And I mean, and we should say too, in Clinton's speech, I mean, the top of it was largely about Trump, but she did affirm, and I think probably more, more appropriately said reaffirm mm-hmm. a lot of her foreign policy views of the importance of alliances, uh, of engagement in the world. I mean, I think you're going to see if she's elected, just taking in the Middle East, I mean, you know, and I got this impression from talking to this week, somebody who is much more engaged than this administration has been in that region and who's going to be more likely to, you know, to use force and, and things that we've talked about before. So that, I mean, that, that may come to actually become a point of friction for the two of them as well. I mean, to the extent that Trump has kind of, in some sense, has painted himself as an isolationist, but then in others talked about, you know, taking far more aggressive military action against ISIS and other, you know, other places in Iraq. In Syria uh, and other groups, then we've seen, I mean, maybe that will become a point where they actually do have to get into it. I, I think that's a great point, Shane. I, I think that this issue of alliances and whether America is kind of going it alone in the world or working in coalition is, is going to be a point of substantive debate. And partly it's because Trump has kind of left himself exposed, trying to have it both ways be... Yeah. He wants the U.S. to be an assertive power, but he want, he doesn't want relationships that enable the U.S. to do that in a, in a way that's not overly burdensome. And that makes him vulnerable with Americans for whom the shadow of Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, weighs heavily. And they don't want the United States to be stuck out there dealing with threats all by itself. So that's a real vulnerability for him. On the other hand, like there is that kind of base, basic impulse of, Let's focus on stuff here at home and, you know, let the rest of the world worry about itself that he does seem to to resonate uh, with. And so, you know, there's almost a duality within his campaign that generates a debate in and of itself. There's no question in my mind, like talking to my interlocutors in the Middle East or even colleagues in Europe and so on, like if the rest of the world had a vote, it's pretty clear which way they would vote in this election, just as it was clear, by the way, in 2008. Um, But, you know, that doesn't always end up reflecting directly in the American body politic that Americans see the rest of the world um, having a certain view of our candidates and and we, you know, reinforce that. Sometimes you can see a backlash against that. One thing that will be really interesting is to what extent the campaigns can insulate themselves from what's actually happening in the world right now. So this week we see the situation in Syria really sort of devolving, um, reaching kind of the, I mean, to call it a crisis considering what's sort of happened over the past four years seems a, a gross understatement. Um, but uh, for how long the campaigns are going to sort of be able to just construct a narrative and respond to kind of their own issues, and at what point people are going to say, uh, look at these images, uh, respond to them. What, like, you know, what is your policy? What would you do if you were in the Oval Office right now? Um, those are much harder things for, to control, um, and Hillary certainly is more equipped to uh, to respond quickly, and, and it'll be interesting to see whether Trump just refuses to engage with them or not. Yeah. 
Okay. Game on. The general election is here. It's going to be fun. It's going to be a lot of fun, actually. I'm really, I'm looking, really forward looking forward to it. Okay, the journalists are salivating. Susan's <laughs> salivating. I... But I have a journalistic ethics question about this. Okay. Um, so Donald Trump seems to me to put uh, to a journalism, the journalism community, a truth versus balance question that uh, other candidates don't. So, you know, you, you sometimes confront this convert, this problem in mainstream discourse, like how do you treat climate change denial or, or how do you treat, you know, sort of wild conspiracy theories. Um, but what about when one of the major political campaign, you know, parties nominates somebody who's sort of all paranoid bullshit? But we and, have the answer to sort of the false equivalence problem in those contexts. The media engages in the false equivalence, right? Well, so, so I don't know. This morning, NPR had to find a, uh, a Trump surrogate to be on Morning Edition. And they found uh, a Hollywood screenwriter who's been hanging out with Donald Trump and supports Donald Trump. And, you know, so on the one hand, you have, you know... Because that's so reflective of American society. It's, reflective it's so of, reflective of Donald Trump, anyway. Yeah, and, and so my, my question is, and, you know, what, what do you do with this? When Donald Trump... So, so when he makes a factual representation, you can fact-check the factual representation. Um, but there is a... An, a necessary and valuable thing that the press tries to do, which is to be impartial between two sides. Now, Hillary is no saint. I'm not a, you know, a Hillary partisan by any means. But she exists within the sort of mainstream discourse of the United States. Donald Trump is wildly outside that. How, what's the right way to think about the way the press should should interact with I, this? I actually think that a lot of this is about being able to fact check in real time because mainstream, non-mainstream is not the issue. Are you lying about your own statements? You know, are you saying I didn't say something when you said it? Um, are you, you know, are you saying I didn't do something when you did it? I and I think that's the media's role is to deal in facts and. One of the turning points that I saw last week was a media that seemed to me to be shifting from the false equivalence season to a little more of that real-time fact-checking, like CNN showing a Trump speech and, you know, Trump, I didn't say Japan should have nuclear weapons, parentheses, he did. <laughs> you know, in the Chiron, on screen, CNN right. was doing real-time fact-checking. No, that, to me, is the role that they can no, play. No, but I'm not talking about false equivalence. I'm talking about something else. So, uh, you know, Hillary, rightly in my view, gets a lot of, uh, uh, you know, negative response to the way she's talked about her emails. Uh, she said things that don't turn out to be true, uh, that are probably were known to be not true at the time that she says them, etc. And we talk about it sort of obsessively. Now, the, the caliber, quantity, and magnitude of the fibs that she has told uh, are trivial in comparison to the sort of thing he does nearly every day. And so my, my question is, is the right thing when the, when, when the press reports on her lack of candor on things to, to note that this is really minor league stuff compared to her opponent? Is it to 
to focus more on these uh, lies that Trump has managed to normalize? Is it to just kind of cover them both as seems right and let people figure out as they may? Uh, you know, he just does, it just seems to me to pose an unusual problem when somebody is completely outside the mainstream of the way American politicians talk. But isn't it that you treat each candidate on their own terms and then let people decide? So I think a really interesting example was the Jake Tapper interview, um, where he uh, followed up, I think, 23 times on uh, whether or not uh, Trump believed that the uh, Trump University judge could uh, uh, effectively do his job because he was of Mexican heritage. Um, and so it's it's the, the media's role is to not let Trump get off the hook after asking the question with one or to follow-ups the way they might with an ordinary candidate, but to sort of tailor their approach to to who that person is and that person's strategy, do the same to Hillary, and then let the voters decide. Well, and then Jake's an interesting example of this, though, because in the week or two before that interview, um, which is interesting that they gave it <clears throat> to Tapper, that, that Trump allowed it to happen, he was noted for a couple of times on air simply calling Trump out and saying, I'm blanking on what the specific instance was, but there was, there was, there was some story where what Trump was saying was just plainly false. And he went on to even say, you know, he's saying almost, it's ridiculous that I should have to stop this broadcast to say the following things, but what this man is saying is not true. And he got actually a lot of, I think, uh, um, laurels from media critics for doing that and kind of resetting in a way the terms of, how TV news usually approaches this, which is to say, well, this person said this thing, this person said this thing, we'll try and follow up and fact check, but basically we're just showing you what it is. And instead, challenging Donald Trump on the grounds that he was speaking, right? Saying like, no, you're not going to, you know, change the backdrop here and color it with lies. We're going to call you out on that, and then we can go forward with the story, but we're not just going to take you setting the table as the first move here. We're going to, we're going to set this right. Um, and I, I, I think you have, the potential for this to actually, this campaign to embolden the American media in a way that it really, frankly, has needed it when it comes to covering politics and recognizing that, you know, simply having one person from each side come on and shout their talking points and kind of, you know, we balance it and you decide not to parrot Fox's line is not necessarily journalism, or at least it's not very good journalism, right? And I think that you have to break up the way that the print media has been covering Trump, which has been far more aggressive and substantive versus cable news, which has been using him for ratings, and that is not conspiracy, that is just a fact, versus, I mean, frankly, radio, which has been trying to just sort of put it out there and let people decide. I mean, NPR having to go find the one, you know, available Trump surrogate that they could get, and it's a Hollywood screenwriter, is, I think, illustrative of the problem that public radio in particular has been having covering this, which is just trying to kind of be as representative as they can, and it ends up, you know, producing... Just bizarre interviews, like interviewing a screenwriter. Who the hell cares what he thinks? You know. <laughs> um, anyway, not to denigrate my friends at NPR. They're doing a great job, but reporting on this stuff has been extraordinarily challenging. I love you, but you're all terrible. You're right. terrible. Actually, where they where they where where they have been shining is in their podcast and then their analysis. But in trying to report on the campaign, has challenged all of us because if you just are reporting on the campaign, you're just going to be reporting on what asinine things this man has said today and then what Hillary Clinton has said in response to it. And, you know, that doesn't reveal very much, I think. Yeah. That's me speaking on behalf of the media. There we go. <laughs> um, all right, let's move on to our next wordplay. Uh, 
I was in Israel this week, as uh, as, I, as uh, last week, as was said. Um, I wrote a piece for the Daily Beast. Uh, I was really struck by the number of people... You were calling for a new war, Shane. I was calling for a new war. Uh, I was struck by the number of people who seemed convinced that um, another war within Gaza was imminent, another war with Hamas was that uh, was just around the corner. Um, a number of reasons proffered for this were the fact that um, well, some people just said it feels like we have a war. We have to have a war every couple of years. So there was hard to tell how much of this was sort of kind of a, I don't know, sort of like maybe Did just like a native pessimism yeah. that exists in Israel mm-hmm. towards these things right now. But there were some very interesting points, one of which was um, there's a lot of talk about the tunnels that Hamas had been digging into Israel um, being on the verge of being being on the verge of being closed uh, because Israel has apparently developed some secret new technology for finding and closing the tunnels and is Hamas going to try and get through them. Um, a lot of anxiety about the new defense minister, Victor Lieberman, and whether or not he is going to want to make good uh, on his sort of more bellicose statements and even threats to assassinate the leader of Hamas. Um, there was actually a countdown clock that was running uh, for whether the leader of Hamas was still alive. And Because Lieberman had said, if I'm elected defense, defense, defense minister, hours. he'll be dead in 48 hours. So there was a little countdown clock. He's, he's still alive, as far as we know. Um, but I'm curious what you all, I mean, especially, you know, folks who, like, like tomorrow, who have spent more time in the region, think about this. I mean, is this just the result of, again, this pessimism and paranoia and people who are sort of nationally on edge uh, in the two years since the last operation? Or do we really see signs that, you know, a conflict, again, is imminent and that Gaza, which is just suffering tremendously and is already kind of frayed, is just becoming uh, the Hamas being pushed to the point where it's going to have no choice but to strike out once again? Yeah, so first of all, great story, Shane, and I think it, it must have been a really interesting week to be there as Lieberman took on this role as defense minister, which, you know, the appointment created a lot of anxiety, um, especially among national security folks in Israel, because he is seen as somebody who, over the course of his political career, although in office has often made fairly pragmatic decisions, his rhetoric is very ideological, and he, when he's running for when he's running for parliament, he runs to the right. And um, and in he was in the cabinet in Netanyahu's cabinet during the last conflict uh, with Hamas, and uh, ha- and pushed hard for the war aims to be expanded for Israel to go back and reoccupy the strip and oust Hamas, and criticized his own prime minister at the time very significantly for his relative restraint um, in terms of war aims in that conflict. So, you know, I understand the anxiety. I think that the the pessimism and the sense of inevitability, if you will, about another round is rooted in the in the structural uh, situation, which is, you know, Hamas is in control of Gaza and Hamas is a resolute adversary of Israel's existence, and they make no bones about that. So these are adversaries. Uh, Israel is not happy about that, obviously, but it wants someone in control of that strip. And over the course of repeated rounds of conflict, for better or worse, many Israeli national security officials feel that they've been able to establish some kind of modus vivendi, you know, through deterrence, through uh, rounds of punishment, whatever, that they've established some sort of tacit understanding between Israel and Hamas. Um, and 
up until recently, what we've seen is Hamas, for example, clamping down on jihadi groups in the Strip, uh, preventing others from firing rockets into Israel and kind of taking responsibility for a monopoly on the use of force, which, you know, is uh, at least a certain constraint on the threat that Israel faces. Um, but what's changed? The Lieberman appointment has changed. I don't think that's really the difference. I think the real difference is the situation in Gaza, as you noted. Uh, the, the Strip and its population were devastated by the last round of conflict. Uh, tens of thousands of people displaced from their homes, schools, all kinds of societal and economic infrastructure destroyed. Uh, people there have very limited electricity, declining um, access to fresh water, uh, and very little has been done to rebuild that basic infrastructure. So there's mounting misery and mounting pressure. And, you know, you note in your story the work that the Israeli government has done to try and increase the provision of supplies into the Strip to enable export by Gazan farmers to the West Bank so they can sell produce. But there are hard limits on that because Israel is primarily concerned about security. Um, and Israel's not getting any help here mm-hmm. because the Egyptians are keeping their border with Gaza completely closed. Every now and then they'll open it up for a few days to let people get to hospitals and stuff like that. So, um, and, and the Arab world is perfectly willing to have Israel blamed for the siege of Gaza. Uh, and, and so that creates a pressure cooker that Israel doesn't actually have, uh, the ability to alleviate very far without, in it, in the view of Israeli officials, putting its own security at risk. So they're in this, uh, they're in this catch 22. They, they want to make life in Gaza better because they think it'll take pressure off Hamas to act out, but they're not willing to go too far in that direction. And they don't want to, uh, they don't want to reoccupy Gaza, uh, but they don't like having Hamas in control either. They have no answer to this dilemma. So one thing I was struck by um, being there in December and having, you know, really relatively little background, you know, even on the issues, um, was uh, this was sort of right at kind of the the peak of sort of the stabbings that were occurring, particularly in Jerusalem. Um, And, you know, we went and we took a tour of the old city. So one thing I was sort of surprised by was just this sort of sense of of pervasive anxiety that was very difficult to sort of rid myself of. Um, And that whenever you're uh, an individual who lives with that sense of anxiety, um, how irrational you can become and how easy it is to sort of, um, how unsustainable that feeling really um, is over the long term. And and my sort of sense... um, was that that anxiety was was mounting and that those are the kinds those those more more so than any of the kind of um, really rational pieces that that Tammy just laid out those are the kinds of things that make a people demand their government do something change the situation and in and whenever sort of the alternatives and the more reasonable alternatives feel like small incremental steps and people are sort of demanding a big action that that that's the sort of thing that pushes into things like war, occupation, et cetera. I wondered about that, too. I mean, I, we met with um, uh, a number of people who live in a town, um, I'm going to mispronounce it, but Natif Hasara, which is right next to the border in Gaza, this sort of in a town, it's more like a neighborhood, you know, um, which is right there next to the security barricade with the wall and the fences. 
And, you know, they openly admitted that they're all suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder and they're waiting at any moment for the rockets to come again. And I did wonder to what extent there was a bit of like a, I don't want to say self-fulfilling prophecy, but this idea that it happened before, it was so traumatic, it's going to happen again, because you don't see the conditions radically changing, right? You don't see a new security situation in Gaza, as tomorrow was saying. Um, so maybe that's a little bit of a chance to be you know, somewhat hopeful about it. And with Lieberman, I mean, there were, for as much as people were freaking out about Lieberman getting into office, it was interesting how many people compared him to Trump, where they said, well, he's said a lot of things, and we'll see what he actually does when think, he gets into office. I actually think the Trump, the Trump analogy is, is reasonably precise, that this is a person who's uh, one part egomaniac, or maybe six parts egomaniac, um, very bellicose, um, and who you really have very little idea what the relationship between his verbal bellicosity and the way he would actually behave really is. Now, with Lieberman, unlike Trump, we do have a, a track record in government, which is, as, as Tamara says, he's less crazy in government than he sounds. He's been foreign minister before. He's never been a, co a constructive presence by any means, but he's... He, he's not a complete mad dog, which is the way he sounds when he talks. Um, that said, I do think if you're a, a, a non-crazy Israeli, much less a Palestinian, uh, the idea of a Victor Lieberman as defense minister is a is a very scary one, and and certainly one that that heightens rather than minimizes anxieties. Well, I I think there are two sources of real concern, and I think with respect to Lieberman's appointment, and neither of them has that much to do with another Gaza conflict. If there is another conflict, decision-making, as always, will rest with the prime minister. And uh, and so, yes, the defense minister will weigh, but Lieberman was part of the security cabinet before uh, in the last round as foreign minister. So I, I actually think the, the greater concern is the day-to-day -day policy authority that the defense minister has over life in the West Bank. Um, and, you know, the defense ministry has uh, administrative authority over uh, life in the West Bank, over whether Palestinians can drill wells, whether they, you know, what kind of roads they can drive on and when. Um, the IDF's presence and operation in Palestinian populated areas of the West Bank. The IDF is not inside the Gaza Strip, you know, except in, in case of conflict. Um, but they are in the West Bank every day and, and conduct, uh, often, uh, arrest raids into Palestinian cities and towns that are a source of tremendous tension. So the defense minister, the defense minister is also the address for a lot of settlers. Uh, who want to do things in the West Bank. Uh, um, and so, and that's Le one of Lieberman's core constituencies. He lives in a settlement himself, and a lot of his political rhetoric is directed at that community. And so I think it's there where you're likely to see, without a lot of bellicosity necessarily, day-to-day -day actions that could either... Uh, Increase tension or decrease tension, and we'll see how he chooses to play it. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's go on to our uh, third word play. Uh, the U.S. Federal Appeals Court has ruled that no, the Fourth Amendment 
does not apply to cell phone location information, uh, what some might call a pretty logical application of third-party doctrine that has made privacy advocates absolutely apoplectic. Susan, some what's going might on? say that. <laughs> One um, might say. You will say. I will say that actually. Um, so this is a, a you know it's an interesting case. Um, it should not be of uh, it should not surprise anybody. It shouldn't it certainly shouldn't surprise lawyers. And yet uh, the reaction was sort of broad uh, disbelief um, in sort of the privacy advocacy community. I mean, this is the, the Fourth Circuit uh, Court of Appeals ruled, in keeping with many other circuits, um, that uh, there is no Fourth Amendment protection for cell site location information. So this is um, whenever you make a cell phone call, it pings the nearest cell tower. It says approximately where you are, um, and the police can obtain that information. Um, and so the question here is whether or not the police can obtain that information without a warrant. Um, one thing that is really, really lost in this discussion is that um, uh, the police, under under current rules, uh, law enforcement actually does require a court order. Um, so the Stored Communications Act uh, essentially gives two choices for obtaining these types of records. They say you can go to a judge uh, and you can get uh, and you can get a warrant, and that's fine. Uh, the alternative is that you can go and get a court order, uh, and in the court order you have to show uh, reasonable grounds to believe that the records are relevant and material to an ongoing criminal investigation. So a much kind of um, a looser standard, but this is not. Um, you know, police can just query this anytime. Um, and so the basic rule here is uh, is the application of the third party doctrine. This is Smith v. Maryland saying that whenever you give information voluntarily to a third party, that third party, there's no reasonable expectation, they can give it to law enforcement. Um, and so this is a pretty uh, ordinary application, um, but it really uh, sort of surfaces the question of whether or not there needs to be a rethinking of the third party doctrine. Um, uh, Many many privacy advocates and, and a lot of critics, sort of even outside the the privacy advocacy community, have criticized this doctrine as outdated, um, as not in keeping with sort of ordinary uh, the expectations of ordinary citizens, um, and and the. Uh, relevance of this particular case is that it actually resolves the circuit split on the issue, meaning that it is less likely in the short term that the Supreme Court is going to take up the issue of the third party doctrine directly, leaving Congress as the really sort of only immediate path, of course, you know, good luck getting Congress to, uh, to pass. So Susan, law. explain something to me. Why, uh, given that uh, Smith v. Maryland exists, uh, that Jones, uh, which, uh, you know, dealt with the GPS device specifically didn't deal with cell site data and left that question open. It's much more clearly covered by the third party doctrine. Uh, why is the privacy community outraged by this rather than seeing it as you know, yeah, the third party doctrine's got to be revisited, but it's not going to be revisited by the Fourth Circuit, even on Bach. Look, so I, I can't explain it because I don't necessarily have this view. I well, think well, what, sort of what's a the fair... nature of the outrage? Right. So I, I think the nature of the outrage is that um, the two elements of potentially putting pressure on the third party doctrine as it currently existed. One, uh, the reasonableness, right? So you have to have a reasonable and subjective belief in privacy, uh, uh in order to obtain Fourth Amendment protection. Um, I think that they were, there was sort of a hope that you could make the case, even though it was contrary to controlling precedent in the third party doctrine, that it, um, the, the type of, of third party sharing that occurred in this case fell so far outside 
outside of a reasonable and subjective belief, right? Uh, certainly, many, many people, the vast majority of people, probably have a subjective belief in privacy, and and at some point that it's um, shared to the extent that that belief becomes reasonable. The second sort of question is the question of voluntary. Um, so the third party doctrine only applies to that information which you have voluntarily shared. The defendant in this case tried to argue that it wasn't voluntary um, because the defendant didn't generate the record and therefore they didn't share it, that the company generated the record. Mm-hmm. The court just said that's absurd on its face. You know, where did it come from then? The heavens? No, you sent the information from your cell phone. Um, I think that it was attempting to make an argument that they weren't able to make under the facts, but really want to. And that's that it's not voluntary because everybody has to use a cell phone in order to be an American citizen. And so the, in order to use a cell phone, you, you cannot avoid producing these records. You cannot make a phone call if you don't um, offer up this data. And therefore, it's not voluntary because in order to interact with the world around you in an even basic way, um, the legal retort to that is, yeah, well, the same could have been true from regular phones, you know, whenever Smith v. Maryland applied. They said you had no reasonable expectation in the number that you dialed into the phone. But I think that this is kind of, it's the, it's the evolution of the sort of the pervasive, uh, forcing function, right? Of can you really be a functioning member of society without a cell phone and a smartphone at this point. Well, I mean, this is, I think this is very interesting, though, because, of course, you can, right? And so I don't know that that imposes a new burden on the government because we all have gotten used to using cell phones or smartphones. But I do think that any individual who contracts with a cell phone carrier knows that that phone carrier has to know where they are. That's how the phone works. And And so it seems to me a bit odd to argue that you have any expectation of privacy in that regard. You are in, just as you don't have expectation of privacy, having a conversation on a cell phone on the sidewalk. You're using um, the the spectrum, which is a public good, you know, and it's regulated. You're using the cell phone carrier. You might even be using a phone that the cell phone carrier has rented to you. On what basis do you have any? You're talking in a public place. On what sign, basis? sign that woman up to, to be a lawyer for the U.S. federal right. government. I think the, re- the rejoinder to that is that if that logic is correct, and I personally agree that logic probably is correct, then there is no expectation of privacy in anything that interacts with technology, and therefore there's this sort of slippery slope. Yeah. I don't know that that's necessarily wrong. Well, this isn't. It seems like the outrage here really is. I mean, if we're just stepping back from what the law says and what we can predict the courts would do, and this seems, as Susan laid out, I mean, utterly predictable that the court would rule this way. Um, <clears throat> it's this. Quite, it's this larger anxiety about metadata, right? It is this 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 belief that we are moving now into an era in which content is not the thing that government agencies are interested in. And as Mike Hayden actually talked about when you interviewed him at the book soiree, Ben, I mean, the intelligence community seems to have already come to grips with the fact that with the proliferation of encryption, you know, don't worry so much about trying to get content. It's the data that content creates. It's the metadata that is going to be very illustrative and illuminating. And people know that now much more much more um, precisely than I think they did three years ago. And so when they hear about government going and saying, well, it's just self-location data, I mean, what's the big deal? Your phone puts it out, the company has it. 
I think they respond and say, no, there is much more that you're able to do now with that data in terms of data mining and pattern analysis, that it is much more revealing than it would have been in an era where technology in the hands of law enforcement didn't let them do that. And that this is where the outrage, while perhaps unjustified on the merits of the case, speaks to this larger anxiety so I, I agree that the law that. doesn't address. By I the agree way. with that completely. I, I think the third-party doctrine is dated, and I think it's going to die. And here's why I think it's going to die. Pacemakers. So imagine that you have a pacemaker, and pacemakers produce a lot of data, and that data can be retrieved from outside of the pacemaker, from outside of the body, so they don't have to cut you open in order to service your pacemaker. Now, pacemaker data could conceivably become relevant to a criminal investigation. Uh, and uh, it is literally data that you've given in the hands of a third party, the pacemaker company. Uh, it is uh, not yours. Um, it actually is proprietary data that belongs to the company. You've turned it over. You didn't have to get that pacemaker. You <laughs> could have died. Um, and, you had uh, a choice. And so you chose life. You chose life. But one of the corollaries of choosing life was that you put all this data in the hands of third parties, and um, you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy and stuff that you uh, knowingly, voluntarily turn over to a third party. Now, if that sounds ridiculous, and to me that sounds ridiculous, uh, it suggests that as we become more and more cyborg-like um, and we become more and more integrated with our technology, there is going to be something defective about a doctrine that draws a very sharp distinction between you and your technology provider. So I'll, I'll sort of um, put a, a, mar a marker down about sort of the state of, of the media and sort of the framing of these issues, because I, I do have to laugh at kind of the, um, the, the shock and the outrage, right? Because, of course, if you'd read the law, you know, give me a break. Um, oh, I, I'm not saying the Fourth Circuit is wrong on the facts as oh, presented. No, no, no. I'm just saying there's something wrong with the doctrine. No, not, not as a response to you, but sort of uh, taking on that, taking on I, what I, I agree that, that you're sort of with your formulation of, of the world, right? That, that, that this is a correct application of the law and potentially more evidence that the third party doctrine should change. Um, whenever this case, uh, this ruling occurred last week, um, an unnamed NPR affiliate contacted me asking if I would go, uh, if I would participate in sort of an on air debate and if I would take the position of the government. Right, sort of represent what the government's position was. And I said, well, you know, I'm happy to participate in the interview. Um, just to be clear, though, my position is that this is the correct application of the law, but potentially evidence that the third party doctrine should change. So they said, okay, you know, we need to sort of decide. And so they went back. Um, and then they came back to me again and they said, well, okay, then can you argue the other position, right? <laughs> that there shouldn't, that this is, uh, you know, this is a ridiculous application and, and, uh, you know, there, there should be a reasonable expectation of privacy. And again, I said, I'm happy to participate in the show. Uh, my position is, is that it's a correct application of the law and evidence that the third party doctrine probably needs to be updated. So in the end, what they elected to do was have an, to have an individual represent, um, that this was a false application, an incorrect application of the law, completely unreasonable, and of course they have a reasonable expectation of privacy, and uh, somebody who represented the position of, of course, there should never be a, a reasonable expectation of privacy in this sort of metadata. Um, and so once again, sort of the, um, in these privacy debates, we see over and over these sort of two crystallized equities being uh, represented over and over again, and completely missing any sense of nuance or productive space out of sort of the desire to present 
present these issues as just drama easy, and nuance. obvious. No so, Pick a side. So, in other words, Shane's critique of media coverage of the presidential campaign applies here also. And damn it, it's all the media's fault. It Just is the media's it. fault. Blame the media. We're used to it. We're used to it. We should have a panel where one person believes fervently that the media is heroic and amazing <laughs> and corrective, and another that believes we're devils. And we'll probably arrive at some clearer understanding. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We'll give it. them both equal time. Right. It'll be good. Uh, all right, let's move on to object lessons. Um, I actually have one before we get to our big, big... I have a brief one as well. have a brief one as well? And then we I have just, our big one. Okay. I just wanted to share this picture. This is... Um, so I mentioned that we went to this um, uh, this, this small little community in Tifasara. Uh, Hasara, sorry. Uh, and what they've done here, this particular this woman we met with named Samarit Zamir, is to take the fragments of the rockets from Hamas that have fallen and to turn them into artwork. So she actually is famous for having decorated this big security wall with these little tiles that say peace on them, and she invites people to come to her house to write a little secret peace message on the back, and she sticks them up on the wall and creates a mosaic. So here's actually a picture of some of the rockets with the little tiles on them, uh, which is, I have to say, like, I mean, it was one of these experiences where it was... My initial reaction when I see kind of things like this is like, you know, my mom was a hippie. It's like, I'm like yeah, you know, I'm a little bit kind but, of, uh, I roll my, I roll my eyes at it. Yeah, but when you've actually taken rockets that fell on your damn house and put, you know, tiles on them and to maintain that level of optimism and faith in the goodness of human nature was, um, that was probably one of the most defiant acts I have ever witnessed. And it really moved me. And I, I just gave her a big hug afterwards. It was super cool. Yeah. You're such a softie. I'm Aww. such a softie. I am so easily manipulated, too. You just, you just, pluck you're me just like a, a string. Peace loving hippie. <sighs> truly Shame am. Here. Truly am. Uh, my object lesson is also a photograph, um, although I'll have to crop it. I can't post it because the um, other members of the photograph do not, uh, did not agree. Uh, to be posted. Um, so this is a photograph from a dinner that took place uh, a few weeks ago uh, in honor of Phil Hyman, who is a, a professor at Harvard Law School who is retiring this year. Um, and it was a gathering of his former students um, here in D.C. to sort of um, honor him and talk about his uh, uh, influence on our lives, um, and so he had—he uh, is a professor who, who focuses a lot on national security issues. And former deputy attorney general. Former of the deputy United attorney States. general. Um, Heard of that job? Yeah, it—it exists. It's a big one. Um, the composition of the people who attended the dinner was incredibly remarkable in terms of kind of um, the roles that they've held. Um, a number of people made speeches about sort of um, what Hyman's. Uh, uh, sort of sensibilities and, and, uh, you know, belief in the goodness of people and the importance of truth and that it matters to be the good guy and all of these other things had that had, um, really influenced people across the political spectrum. Um, and so it was just a really wonderful tribute to him. So my object lesson is Phil Hyman. Um, we will miss you and enjoy retirement. Yeah. He is, among other things, a perfectly lovely guy. A completely lovely person. Ben. Take well, us on a journey, Ben. My object lesson is a voicemail that was left on uh, Tammy and my home voicemail this morning, which I'm going to play you now. This call is to inform you that the IRS has issued an arrest warrant upon you, and currently your physical address is under federal investigation. So call me back to get the detailed information about your case. My callback number is 914 266 8427. I repeat, it's 914 
866-266-8427. It's very important we hear from you today. Thank you and have a great day. Have a great day. Have a the great IRS day. The arrest you. <laughs> okay. They're so, going to jail. So the IRS has issued Wait. an arrest warrant for either me or Tamara. Our, our physical address. Our physical address has is under an federal arrest warrant. investigation. <laughs> it's in it's when you arrest it's your house. <laughs> so we thought we should uh, call. Arrest my house, please. <laughs> we, we thought we should, we should call back and uh, find out what's up and, 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 and what's going on with our poor house and, and the IRS arrest warrant. We made repeated efforts to dial this number to save our house from arrest and our, uh, and the IRS from, uh, uh, executing a warrant against us. And mysteriously, this very reputable, uh, gentleman who called us was unreachable. Uh, sometimes we got busy signals and sometimes we just got blank numbers. So if anybody has any information about this clearly reputable activity and why the IRS would be issuing arrest warrants against me, uh, please tweet it at us. Uh, how does this scam work and uh, what do we know about it? Or I just if you think want this is another example of executive branch overreach. Mm-hmm. Right. It oh, actually it sure is, is the IRS. <laughs> or if you guys want to contribute to Ben and Tammy's legal defense funds, <laughs> send a check our way. Right. There's well, a lot on the line use. here, you guys. Save my physical address Save from arrest. Save arrest. <laughs> <laughs> well, definitely let us know if you guys have a, have a way out of this nightmare. Um, and that brings us to the end of the show. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find links to our past archive at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at RATL Security and let us know how we're going to keep Ben and Tammy from becoming homeless. Yeah, and let us know if you too are being pursued or your house is being arrested by the IRS. <laughs> I'm guessing this this may be a pervasive problem. It's, it may be a bigger problem than we know. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the podcast is edited and produced by Jen Howell. Our music is performed this week by Treberman. What? Get it? No. no. It's the new duet that was formed by Trump and Lieberman. Oh! They were going to name themselves Lieberump, but that didn't do so well on the focus cruise. <laughs> Lieberump. The best jokes are the ones you have to explain. Now. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's, a th- it's a thinker. It's a thinker. Absolutely. No, of course, our music was performed this week by Sophia Yan, who, last I checked, had neither voted for Trump or Lieberman in any elections. You don't know. She's yeah. a complex... That's true. She's a very complex, enigmatic person. I don't even know where she's registered to vote. I assume New York. She wants to keep know, you... She couldn't be registered in Washington. She wants she... to keep you guessing. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. And uh, by the way, the primary's not over because D.C. votes next week. June 15, guys. I am organizing a boycott of the D.C. primary vote because, you know... <laughs> we... No one will notice. Because <laughs> we get, you know, every... Why do we have to be last? And last alone. It's not like last grouped with North, you know, North Dakota, South Dakota, California, New Mexico, and New Jersey. We're all by ourselves not mattering. And I think we should just stand up and not be counted to protest that. So I am not voting two weeks from today. The nation will not notice. This is our fate. We are always the last to be counted. 
alone. Notice that the two individuals whose last name begin with W are taking <laughs> real issue about being forced to be last. I didn't grow up W, so I didn't have to sit in the back of L class. Listen, you H's. <laughs> <laughs> so much better in the front of the alphabet, isn't you it? You know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, on behalf of my friends, even those with unfortunate last name, Ben Wittes, Mark Hoffman-Wittes, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Let's Harris. Let's do that in alphabetical order next oh, time. Oh, we should. We should. Oh, we should. Then I go first. I'm Shane Harris. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to health care, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.